Ni hao, everybody. Welcome to CNA Newsroom. I'm your host and CNA Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn. We are the podcast that brings you great stories and the Catholic news that matters each week. Listen, guys, are you subscribed to CNA Newsroom yet? Because if you aren't, do it now. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, Spotify, you name it, we're there. And if you subscribe, then we won't annoy you every week to listen. We'll just count on the fact that this podcast is getting delivered to your phone. So listen, we have a great episode for you this week. It's Valentine's Day. So we thought maybe we would kind of dig into the history of St. Valentine and maybe read some romantic poetry and then rate different flavored hearts with a little writing on them. But then we decided we didn't want to do any of that. So it might be Valentine's Day, but we're going to talk about something completely different this week. And we're going to talk about something really important. This episode is the first in a two-part series about China. Stay with us. You've reached the CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. Welcome to CNA Newsroom. Back in September, the Vatican and the Chinese government in Beijing signed a provisional agreement, which they said concerns the nomination of bishops, which is a question of great importance for the life of the church in China. The Vatican said that the deal would create the conditions for greater collaboration at the bilateral level between the church and the Chinese government. Vatican spokesman Greg Burke said at the time that the deal was a beginning, not the end, of a process of dialogue between people from, quote, very different standpoints. And the deal was the fruit of conversations that had gone on for years during the papacy of Benedict XVI and during the papacy of Pope Francis. The idea was to try to find something to regularize the lives of Chinese Catholics. For a long time, there's been a split in the Catholic Church in China. There has been the Chinese Catholic Patriotic Association, which is a state-run, state-sanctioned, state-overseen Catholic Church. And there has been what's called the Underground Church, bishops who are appointed and led by Rome, who are in communion with Rome, but who are not connected to the Chinese church and were breaking Chinese law by their religious activities. The goal of China and the Vatican was to find a way to bring those two things into harmony so that Chinese Catholics would be able to practice their faith without fear of religious persecution. But after the deal was signed, a lot of people asked if it had accomplished those goals, and if it had, whether the Vatican gave up too much in the process. CNA's Rome correspondent Courtney Grogan is a China expert, and we talked with her about the situation of the church in China today. Can you tell me about the situation with the two churches, the Patriotic Association and the so-called underground Catholic Church? Why did one church end up going underground? What are the characteristics of each? Um, Can you just give me kind of a history of that? For, For the last several decades in China, the Catholic Church has been divided between underground house churches that submit to the Vatican and state-approved churches that ultimately submit to the government. So in China, Catholics either worship in churches run by the Chinese Patriotic Catholic Association, which is a government-controlled entity that historically has monitored the mainland Chinese Catholic community without the Vatican's approval, um, or in underground Catholic communities. Underground Catholicism has existed in China since the Communist Revolution in 1949, when Mao Zedong took power and Christianity was suppressed. In the early 1950s, nuns and priests were forced to leave China, as well as all foreign missionaries and non-Chinese Christian teachers were all exiled from China. And at that time, um, right after the Communist Revolution, there were about 3 million Chinese Catholics. In 1957, 
the Chinese Communist Party pivoted a bit and established the Chinese Catholic Patriotic Association. Um, and that was an attempt to control those existing Catholics in China. Pope Pius Twelfth responded by condemning the activities of the uh, Chinese Catholic Patriotic Association and declaring the bishops who participated in consecrating new bishops selected by the CCPA to be excommunicated. During St. John Paul II's pontificate, the Vatican and China engaged in quiet negotiations beginning in the late 1980s and adopted an informal arrangement for the mutual recognition of bishops and kind of began this long diplomatic process um, in, in, in talking with, with China over this dispute over the recognition and appointment of bishops. It's important to note, as Pope Benedict XVI wrote in his beautiful letter to Chinese Catholics in 2007, that today the sacraments within the Chinese Patriotic Association churches are valid. So if you're in China, um, you know, you're in Beijing or Shanghai for a business trip and you visit an above ground Catholic church and you attend mass, you're still receiving the, the body and blood of Christ. It's also important to remember that in China, both underground and above ground Catholics, so to speak, and clergy often interact with each other. They're not so divided that they're, you know, against one another. Can you tell me about the Vatican's most recent agreement with Beijing? Why do you think that agreement was timed when it was? What was the, the shift that was made there with that agreement? The timing of this is really fascinating. I think if we look back to March 2013, both Pope Francis became Pope and Xi Jinping became president of China on March 13th and 14th, respectively. And since his election, Pope Francis has been very eager to normalize relations with China. He invited President Xi to visit Rome, which she refused. And uh, the Vatican Secretary of State under Pope Francis has continued the Vatican's uh, diplomatic outreach with China with, with a sort of enthusiasm. On his part in the past, I guess, five, almost six years now, President Xi's been uh, an increasingly authoritarian leader of China, including in the area of control of religion. You may remember that around this time last year, the Chinese constitution was changed to give President Xi the possibility of lifelong rule. Under his presidency, Muslims have been rounded up and put into re-education camps. Christian churches have been bulldozed and missionaries have been arrested. Uh, President Xi has led a campaign of sinonization of Christianity um, in which his goal seems to be sort of uh, Catholicism with Chinese characteristics, so to speak. So you have these two leaders who um, it seems have very different motivations for coming together in, in diplomacy. How does the government's approach to religion and Christianity, how is it similar or different to its other human rights abuses? At the moment, the Chinese government's approach to Christianity and religion in general has been an, a, an attempt to control. They want religion in China to be distinctively Chinese and, and free from foreign influence, which naturally does pose some difficulties for Catholicism. Freedom of religion in China is limited. Uh, recent years have seen churches closed, crosses removed, mosques demolished. The Uyghur Muslims have been sent to internment camps. However, I think that the limitations of freedom of religion in China is just part of the broader um, 
history of human rights abuses in China, which includes a long history of forced abortions, gendercide, and it's uh, under its former one-child policy and now uh, two-child policy. Christianity's history in China includes a lot of persecution. What do you know about that persecution? Why is there so much tension between Christianity and the government of China? Ultimately, it comes down to why there's always tension between Christianity and authoritarian rule, particularly a secular um, or pagan authoritarian rule. You could ask why there was so much tension between early Christianity and the ancient Roman Empire. The idea that there is an ultimate authority higher than the government, a king of kings, is terrifying to a government that wants total control of its population, whether it's the Chinese Communist Party, a dynastic Chinese ruler, or Caesar Augustus. If we look at modern China in particular, today's leaders in, in China, now I'm talking about you know, very recent times in China's long history, today's leaders in China are very aware of the impact that uh, St. John Paul II's bold proclamation of truth had on the fall of the Soviet Union. And that scares them, <laughs> frankly. You know, I think it, it, some of this persecution does come out of a sense of fear for their own power. But when we look at, at China today, I think it's also important to know that Christianity is growing in China at the same rate as it was in ancient Rome. Every time I, I visited China, you know, no matter where I was in the country, it's, it's reaffirmed for me that at this particular moment in history and the country's development, people in China are really searching for truth. They're searching for a greater sense of meaning in their lives. And I found people to be, to be very open to the gospel. And I think that that is a great source of hope for our times. Thanks again so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Yeah, thank you, Kate. Always a pleasure. Cardinal Joseph Zen is the Archbishop Emeritus of Hong Kong, and he has been a frequent and outspoken critic of the Chinese government's record on human rights and religious liberty. He has a new book out. It's called For the Love of My People, I Will Not Remain Silent. That is a serious mic drop book title. He talked with Deputy Editor-in-Chief Michelle LaRosa about his book and about the church in China. Here's Cardinal Zen's take. Your Eminence, you have been one of the most vocal critics of the agreement between the Holy See and Beijing to unite the underground church and the Chinese Patriotic Catholic Association. Why are you opposed to that? <laughs> now, this uh, separation was caused by something everybody knows. It is that the government is pushing for something which uh, many people think in their conscience they cannot accept. Now, have they changed the policy? Has the, uh, the Petit Association changed its nature? If not, how can you be united? How can be united? You just uh, put them together uh, in the same cage, then you say there's a unity? No, because the real situation has not changed, and it depends on the government. It's not on, on, on our goodwill. It's not uh, depend on the goodwill of the Holy Father. So it's not enough for the Holy Father to have a good desire. The reality has not changed. The people who support the deal say that it will help with communion in the church and it might help prevent persecution. The, the unity is a long journey and it depends on goodwill on both sides. You cannot decide today we have unity. You don't have unity. 
You are forcing the unity. You are forcing the divine providence. You are damaging our faith. You are destroying the faith of many people. You are destroying the credibility of the church. That's uh, very sad. Very, very. It's terrible. So I, I don't think there's, there's any any reason for rejoicing. In your new book, you have lectures on the letter of Pope Benedict from 2007 on the Church in China. Why do you see that document as continuing to be so important to guiding this situation? Yes, it's important because there you have uh, uh, clear ideas uh, what should be the direction of everything we, we do. And there is no illusion, but there is a good will. And there is a clear doctrine of the Church and also very open attitude. But you cannot... I have no button line uh, in uh, uh, making compromise. So I, I think uh, uh, Pope Benedict must be very sad these days. Yeah, you, you, you can't force the things because there's no foundation in this moment for a change. Not at all. You just look at uh, uh, the many things uh, which happened immediately after the signing of the agreement. Uh, immediately after the signing, they, uh, the, the official spokesman still say, now we hold uh, the principle of independent church. Uh, we will always follow uh, the, the leadership of the party. Yeah. And then they celebrated the 60th anniversary of the, the first uh, illegitimate bishop's uh, consecration. Uh, there is no, uh, no change at all uh, uh, on the other side. So uh, what have you get from this agreement? Nothing. In the book that you just released, reflecting on Pope Benedict's letter, what is the proper way to pursue unity in the church in China? Uh, you have to, uh, to make a miracle uh, to have the other part to accept your fundamental tenets. Uh, I mean, to be faithful to your church and to grant a degree of a real freedom. And then it's a success. If they are not ready to do anything in that sense, then you have to wait. You cannot force uh, agreement in the wrong direction. Now they are saying that uh, a, a bad deal uh, is better than no deal. That I, I cannot understand that. Bad is bad. Huh? Uh, we, we try to uh, have dialogue, but uh, it, it's not, not possible in this moment. You don't see any goodwill on the other side. Because now uh, the Chinese government feel powerful, and so they are arrogant. So we have to wait. Now, with the help of the Vatican, they are destroying the underground church. They are destroying the good part uh, even of the official church. It's a complete defeat. The people uh, are, are lost. Uh, they are confused. They, they, they say, well, so w w what now the Holy Father is, is asking us to do? Should we join the particular association? But the letter of Pope Benedict said that is not allowed. So what to do? There is no clear direction. What else can people learn from Pope Benedict's letter and from your book? Uh, it's important to read that letter carefully, and uh, my book may help to understand all the background of that letter. So you're saying that the people in China are now confused because there are two different directions, so they don't know what to do? Yeah. First, we have to know the will of the Holy Father. Then we can discuss what should be our attitude. You know, many people ask me. So I say, I, I, I cannot uh, give you any direction. I can only give you hypothetical direction. I say, if the Holy Father allows you to uh, uh, give your name to the Petit Association, you may do it. You may do it. Huh? 
But then uh, somebody say, no, my conscience says it's, it's uh, not possible. Okay, if your conscience says that you cannot join the Petty Association, you cannot join and uh, go home uh, silently. Uh, don't fight the Holy Father, uh, but the Holy Father surely will respect your conscience. You quietly retire uh, and uh, uh, don't uh, uh, provoke the government and don't fight the Holy Father. Uh, you go back to to toy the soil and uh, uh, to pray uh, and wait, wait for better times, okay? Those are all of my questions for you, Your Eminence. Do you have anything else to add? No, uh, I repeat that I really hope everybody go back to the letter and uh, uh, read my book because uh, I have hesitated long uh, before deciding to publish those uh, uh, lectures last year because uh, I think that people have right uh, to the truth. The truth uh, is important, yeah. Thank you very much, Your Eminence. Thank you for calling, huh? It's not easy or even fair to talk about one China. More than one billion people live in China, and so it's hard to say that any one thing is true about the entire country. People's experiences make a huge difference on their perspective. We talked this week with an American Catholic entrepreneur who has spent decades living in China about her experiences living the Catholic faith in some of China's most urbanized centers and in some remote rural areas. How um, did your experience of Catholicism in China, how did it compare to your experience growing up as a Catholic on the East Coast? So, so the Chinese, at least in, in the years that I've been there, they don't have access to the same level of ministries that we have. And yet the, the Chinese people, they're so resilient and so devout in their faith, and they find a way for communion, for fellowship with one another. And in my experience, um, just with the sacraments, I mean, the masses are overflowing, absolutely overflowing, um, and cities and the countryside that I've been to. And I want to say that doesn't matter if you're at the patriotic church or the so-called underground church. You're going to find those sacraments still practiced and, and experienced them in the same way that you would back home. Can you describe the relationship between the Patriotic Association and the underground Catholic Church? How did you perceive that relationship while you were an active Catholic in China? I think a lot of people like to describe, you know, the underground church and and the official church, the patriotic churches, is kind of black and white things, and it's not. It's much more complex than that. And one of the things I like to keep in mind, and what I've experienced, for example, especially is among the younger generation. So among the older generation, you're going to see people who pretty much identify to be part of the underground church or you know part of the patriotic church, but even that isn't hard and fast. Um, but especially among the younger generation. So you might have somebody who grew up going to church with their family and in some region, let's just say it's in rural China, and then they go away to the city for work or for school. And when they're at home, they were going to the underground church. But when they go to the city, let's say they go to Shanghai, and then they're in Shanghai. And in Shanghai, they... Uh, noticed that down the street from the university, there's there's a church there, and it's a, it's a patriotic Catholic church. And they go there, and they're receiving the same sacraments. You know, mass looks just the same. 
except this time it's actually in a proper church building perhaps instead of what they might have had back home they you know have they're getting fed and 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 i think that's what you really see is people end up going where they're getting fed spiritually and i mean i like to think of it this way you know saint paul who was talking about it when there was seeing a lot of uh, fractioning within the churches that he was helping to settle in different parts. And, um, you know, he said, you know, some say we're from Paul, some say we're from, you know, Apollos. And he said, no, no, we're all from Jesus Christ. We're all from Jesus Christ. And I think that is the most important thing. I've, I have not come across somebody who did not have the utmost respect for the Pope, for the Vatican, what the church teaches, you know, we're not talking about polar opposites or people who are um, enemies towards each other. We're talking about the one true Catholic Church. And in some parts of China, um, you actually see the Patriotic Church helping to support the underground church. But it's not everywhere. You're going to definitely see some uh, greater enmity in some regions. But um, in, a, in a lot of places I've been to, um, there's... Um, maybe not open cooperation, but there's kind of closed door cooperation between the churches. And I think that's something to bear in mind as well. So I don't, I don't usually see this divide that we hear about. I, I think it's a, you know, something that's in people's minds, but I think we need to get rid of that idea and look at this as a church that for reasons of primarily politics um, and historical reasons, you know, you have a part of this church that had to go underground. Were you in China when the Vatican signed its recent agreement with Beijing? And if you were, what is the concrete impact of that agreement that you saw at least? Some people are very well aware, some aren't. I think a lot of people were very hopeful um, of what it ultimately will mean for the church uh, to be more unified, to be more integrated, especially for those who have seen what both the the underground church and um, the official patriotic church what it has offered for them and for other people that they know i think where you i've talked to some people i had a conversation with somebody who's much much older you know in his 70s and you know he, he grew up the underground church was all he knew his response was well you know this he said i i, I don't agree with it it's he said it hurts a little bit but he said if if this is what the Vatican wants, this is what the Pope wants, and I will go with it. He said, I am obedient. I am obedient to what the church decides, that the church ultimately knows what's best for China. He was struggling a bit, I think, emotionally, and that's understandable because so much of his identity, he had been there through the persecutions. He had been there through so much of that, and so that was more of a struggle. Um, but I also talked to an underground priest, and, and he said, you know, my investments, you know, all the things that I use for saying mass, everything that I have, he said, these are all been gifted to us by the Patriotic Church. So he said, I have them to thank. And he said, my hope is that we can be unified. I spoke to another um, man not too long ago who's from the underground church. And he had he had said, you know, he said, we need the official church. He's saying right now in so many parts of China, he said the underground church is dying because um, of, in some parts, an unwillingness to work together to collaborate with the official church. And he said, I'm 35 years old and I'm the youngest person who shows up to mass every every week. 
And he said, I want to do so much with my faith. Everybody else has left the church. And he says, I, I, I go to mass and, and, you know, if he goes into the cities, he's not far from the city. And he said, if he goes to mass and he looks in some of these patriotic churches, they're brimming, absolutely brimming, full of people, young and old. But he says, back home, he says, they're all blue heads, is what he calls them, blue heads. And, you know, just elderly folk. And, and he said, there's not a single person younger than me. And he says, you know, if we don't come together as a church and we don't start going out to evangelize because a church, the church by its very nature is missionary, right? So we have to go out. We have to go out. But it's hard to do if you're part of the underground church. But if we are united, then we have the greater ability to go out and be that missionary church. And I hear those kinds of calls to evangelization, to greater evangelization. When I go to mass in Chinese, I hear the priest and the priest will say, your homework is to come back next Sunday with a friend, bring a friend to mass. And I heard another bishop um, in the in the countryside once, and he was, uh, you know, again a patriotic bishop, and and he he said, you know, China is one of the has one of the greatest markets for evangelization in the world today. What are you doing about it? What are you doing about it? But by again by its very nature within the underground church, it's harder to to invite people in, and for some people it means a difficult decision because of where they're working or things of that nature, um, to be able to go to an underground church, especially if you're in a government position, you really need to go to one of the patriotic churches. Um, so, so people have those decisions to make. And if the sacraments are the same, many of them will naturally choose to go to the patriotic church if they can also get fed there as well. Imagine some of our listeners know very little about the church in China. What would you want them to know? The church in China is a place where I've really gone to be inspired in my faith by the sheer devotion and dedication that I see of Chinese lay people who will travel miles and miles to go to Mass. When you look at a church that is persecuted, you see a people who come together more strongly. They become more convicted in their faith. And they really lean on one another, very much like the early church uh, that we see in the Acts of the Apostles and, and from in the times of the Church Fathers. And I think that is the overriding principle behind what the Vatican is doing. This idea of the church in China is better united than divided. Unfortunately, you're still also seeing um, an uptick in persecution against many within the underground church, but it's not limited to the underground church. You're also seeing the patriotic church, which is also facing um, a lot of stricter measures that is hurting the church there as well. Alexa, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. God bless you. So stay in Chinese. That's it for this week's episode of CNA Newsroom. But next week is part two of our two-part series on China. And guys, we got Chen Guancheng, which is really cool. That's like getting LeBron James in the first round draft pick of a podcast about China. So listen up. By the way, I'm joined in the studio this week by a friend of CNA, our good friend, Father Don Bosco Anyala. Hello, hello. Father is visiting us from Kenya, but we still did an episode about China instead of Kenya. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one day. One day we'll Maybe one day. Anyway. 
CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. I'm your host and CNA's editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn. We're produced and edited by Kate Vike and Jonah McEwen. Our executive producer is the great, the talented, the amazing Kate Vike. Special thanks this week to Courtney Grogan, Cardinal Zen, Father Don Bosco for hanging out with us, and all of you listeners. But mostly, thanks to those of you who are subscribed. Adios. Adios.